This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, we're looking at The Bell by Iris Murdoch, a novel which Burgess calls, quote, intensely poetic and beautifully organised. At the beginning of The Bell, we meet Dora Greenfield, an impulsive young wife who has recently had an affair. In an attempt to save her marriage, she moves with her husband Paul to a lay religious community at a mansion outside Imber Abbey. At Imber, Dora meets a selection of lost souls who are looking for salvation, not least the director of the community, Michael, who, crippled with guilt, is trying to reconcile his homosexual desire with his devout religion. Dora forms a friendship with a young student who has just arrived at Imber, and together they discover the lost Abbey Bell at the bottom of the lake. As they form a plan to secretly restore the bell to its tower, the members of the community gradually succumb to their desires with explosive results. First published in 1958, the bell shows Murdoch developing some of the philosophical thoughts she would go on to articulate fully in both novels and non-fiction. The characters are all on moral journeys, whether through their own interpretation of religion or through art or love. Yet they are not merely ciphers used by Murdoch to discuss morality, they are satisfyingly real and their flaws are distinctly human. It's a quietly progressive book dealing with themes which would have been shocking to an audience who had yet to experience the liberation of the 1960s. Burgess notices this in his review in 99 Novels, writing that the bell is, quote, a synthesis of the traditional and the revolutionary. Iris Murdoch was born in Dublin in 1919 and is perhaps best known for her novel The Sea, The Sea, which won the Booker Prize in 1978. She published 26 novels, including The Unicorn, The Nice and the Good and The Black Prince. As a philosopher, she wrote five books, including The Sovereignty of Good and Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals. She died in 1999. To help us understand the bell, we talked to Avril Horner, Emeritus Professor of English at Kingston University, London. Avril specialises in women's writing and Gothic literature and has published widely on authors such as Daphne du Maurier, Edith Wharton and Iris Murdoch. Her latest book is Living on Paper, Letters from Iris Murdoch, 1934-1995, which she edited with Anne Rowe. With Anne Rowe, she also edited books on Iris Murdoch and morality, and the texts and contexts of Iris Murdoch. She is currently working on the book Comic Gothic with Suze Losnick, which will be published by Edinburgh University Press in 2023. 
You can head to the description of this episode for all relevant links and a list of all the books mentioned. I'm Graham Foster of the Burgess Foundation, and I spoke to Avril Horner in January 2022. Avril, thanks for joining us on the 99 Novels podcast. Um, we're here today to talk about The Bell by Iris Murdoch. Um, but, but first, we'd like to, to ask a question about, about how you discovered the novel. Um, I, got, I pulled my copy out. I'm very fond of my old copy, uh, which I bought in 1969, so 11 years after it was first published. Um, and I remember that I'd read um, the first three novels, Under the Net, The Flight from the Enchanter and The Sandcastle. So I was interested in Iris Murdoch and was sort of keeping an eye on her work. So although I didn't read it in 1958, I read it in 1969. And uh, I was in my first year of school teaching in the secondary school. I don't think the bell was on the syllabus at that time, although it did come on the A-level syllabus some years later. So I think I just bought it for pleasure. And I remember thinking that it was one of Iris Murdoch's best novels. You know, it was the best one I'd read so far. I think it's a, it is one of Murdoch's... Uh best novels I really yes. enjoyed reading yeah. it um yeah. we'll talk a bit later about how it connects to her other work but yes. um why do you think Burgess chose to include it in his list uh, his list is very sort of idiosyncratic yes and, and yeah. uh s- some strange choices on the list yeah. But, yeah. but what was the novel's reputation in 1984 when 99 novels was published um, well, I'll answer the first question first. Why do you think he included it in his list? I was very pleased to see it. it's such an eclectic list, actually. I found it fascinating to look through the list. Um, but in his introduction to 99 novels, he says, that he says that the main task facing the novelist is, and I'm quoting, the ability to create human beings whom we accept as living creatures filled with complexities and armed with free will. Now, Murdoch, I think, was brilliant at creating characters who are both complex and whose free will results in all sorts of dilemmas with which the reader can identify. And the concept of free will was very important to her, especially when she went through her existentialist phase. Um, And then he goes on to say in the introduction, a novel will question convention and suggest to us that the making of moral judgments is difficult. And again, this is spot on for Iris Murdoch. It's how, how her fiction works. She she often questions conventional morality in her fiction, as we'll see when we discuss the bell. And, and as a moral philosopher, she was really interested in the decisions people make in difficult circumstances and how these might relate to questions of good and evil. So it seems to me that in his introduction, in, in writing these things, um, Burgess, you know, he has someone like Iris Murdoch in the back of his mind because her novels fit that template so precisely. When it was published, um, uh, the novel's reputation in 1984, when 99 Novels was published, um, was not quite so secure as it was when it first came out, and it is now. When it first came out, it sold extremely well and was very well reviewed and, you know, was welcomed as her best novel so far. Um, But in the 1980s and 1990s, her work fell out of fashion a little bit. Um, I think the first reason was that some of her critics dismissed her novels as only dealing with, if you like, what we might call bourgeois sorrows of highly privileged individuals who didn't have to worry about peeling potatoes or earning a salary. Um, And this led in the 80s um, and before, actually, to some very witty parodies. And I think probably the most famous is Malcolm Brabber's. um, And he wrote in an essay called A Jaundice View, Augustina is in love with Fred, Hugo is in love with Augustina, Flavia is in love with Hugo, Fred is in love with Flavia, Maura is in love with Fred, 
I, Alex, am in love with Moira, and you, Lavinia, are in love with me, which is a very witty parody. And the second reason her work fell out of favour a bit in the 80s and the 90s was um, that university teaching during those decades was strongly influenced by um, uh, theoretical thinking, by structuralism and postmodernism. So a lot of um, critics were looking, or university academics and critics were looking for Derridean wordplay and deconstruction of absolutes. Um, and they rejected the idea that a novel can have intrinsic and lasting meaning. And of course, Murdoch's novels don't fit this at all. They fly in the face of all that because they do uphold absolutes such as love and goodness. And Murdoch always claimed um, that art is a path to truth and self-awareness and the good. And this chimes, of course, with what Burgess wrote when he said the novel is a powerful literary form which is capable of reaching out into the real world and modifying it. Um, but that wasn't how university um, academics were thinking in the 80s and 90s. But um, Murdoch scholars still rate the Bell as one of her best novels. As far as ordinary readers concerned, it's always been popular, um, despite academic thinking in the 80s and 90s. And there was a TV and a radio adaptation um, quite soon after it came out. Um, and two years before Burgess's book was published, there, were, there was um, a four-part television series. Um, and more recently, I think what we might call the ethical turn in philosophy and literary criticism, um, there's been a revival of interest in her work. She's now also taken very seriously as a philosopher, which she wasn't for much of the 80s and early 90s. But The Bell, I think, has survived all, <coughs> survived all that. And as, as we've agreed, it is one of her best novels still, despite being a fairly early work. That, that's fascinating. And I think the way you describe uh, the interest in in uh, Murdoch's work sort of reflects the interest in Burgess's work, certainly in the in the late 80s and the 90s, especially. Um, there was a sort of dip in interest uh, in Burgess's work. And and Burgess has never sort of been held in this this great esteem as a great British novelist in, in the same way. Murdoch perhaps hasn't, uh, certainly since her death. Um, so perhaps there are similarities between yes. the two writers there. Yes, I think so. Um, but going back to 99 novels, Burgess says the bell is, uh, and this is a quote, the synthesis of the traditional and the revolutionary. What do you think he means by that? Do you think that's an accurate description of Murdoch's novel? Yes, I do. And I think it can... Um can be unpicked in various ways. I mean, there, um, we'll talk about the, the revolutionary attitudes uh, to sexuality and desire, which um, make, make the novel quite unusual for a novel published in 1958. But I think it's also formally, um, uh, it's both traditional and revolutionary. It opens in a very realist way that all readers can relate to, with uh, Dora Greenfield on a train journey to join her husband um, at a sort of retreat in, at Imber Court in Gloucestershire. But very quickly, we have Gothic elements coming in. Um, Dora feels a sense of the eerie and the uncanny as soon as she arrives at Imber Court and the grounds around it. And of course, quite soon after that, we're told the legend of the nun and her lover which um, features a nun several centuries ago climbing over the wall, um, the Abbey Wall. 
um, and falling and breaking his neck and then the nun drowning herself in despair. And when the bishop comes um, to, to just do an inquisition, if you like, on what's happened, um, he curses the abbey and, and the bell, the original bell, is said to have flown out of the bell tower and landed in the lake. And so at the heart of the novel, you have this image or this symbol of the bell, the bell drowned, drowning and swimming, you know, occur quite a lot in the novel. And the bell um, is... It becomes a very potent symbol. There are also dreams and other symbols in the novel, but the bell is the key one. And it seems to stand for many things in the novel, such as love, innocence, truth-telling. And it's called Gabriel, which reminds us of the angel Gabriel who brought Mary the news that she was carrying the Messiah. So um, it suggests a bringer of profound change. And that's what happens in the novel. The whole business, um, uh, Dora and Toby Gash, a young, uh, a young student who's there as well decide to pull the old bell out of the lake and this precipitates a number of incidents in the plot in the novel um, which profoundly change people's lives um, and of course more generally bells symbolize beginnings and endings commands and warnings all that so the not the symbol of the bell is, is very very powerful so i think in this novel she um, she blended realism with the symbolic and and also comedy with tragedy and we'll, we'll talk more about that later perhaps um, and I'm also fascinated by how um, it's structured as well through um, incremental repetition. A lot of things happen twice. Uh, for example, we hear the story about the young lover, the young man climbing over the wall to make love to his his um, wonderful nun um, centuries ago. But Toby Gash, in the present moment of the novel, also climbs over the wall, but he doesn't break his neck and he has a rather joyous and strange experience in the happy grounds with the nun who persuade him to go on the swing um, and so on and so on. There's another example, Catherine's um, uh, uh, drowning takes place. The nun in the legend drowns herself. Catherine Forley, Nick's Forley twin sister, who is about to enter the abbey as a novitiate, tries to drown herself in despair, but she's saved by um, what Murdoch describes as an aquatic nun. I think it's um, Sister Claire. And of course, Michael Mead's original infatuation with um, Nick Forley some years ago is repeated when he becomes infatuated with Toby Gash. Fine, and, and another final example, Dora has... Um, she decides to leave her husband. She returns, she leaves him twice, but finally, by the end of the novel, she, she leaves him for good. So the repetitions give the novel a sort of fugue-like effect and they grow in intensity so that you feel the novel building to a climax. And they also prompt us to ask in what sense, or indeed if, um, such repetitions offer, offer characters an opportunity for self-awareness and moral growth. So we know that Dora breaks free of her mistakes by the end of the novel and has become a much more mature individual. But we, are, we don't know about Michael. Michael's you know, a complex character and it's really hard to tell what will happen to Michael, whether he will learn from his um, liaisons with, with young men and, and how to handle his own homosexual desire or, or whether he won't. That's left open, I think, for us. I, I think you talk about the structure of the novel so well there and, and the repetitions become, they sort of layered upon each other and they become so sort of, almost uh uh you know unbelievable in their in their sort of occurrences but but somehow ingrained within the in in the story of the novel but but something else that that you didn't mention um which 
could perhaps fit in with Burgess's The Revolutionary um, is some of the the inner inner life of of Dora specifically. I'm I'm thinking of things like um, when she first gets on the train to go to Imber, um, the the sort of neuroses bubbles over on this hot train carriage, and the writing about her inner state of mind is so contemporary and so um, so real uh, that it, it sort of pushes against this being purely a sort of symbolic novel. Um, and and it, it creates uh, a, a huge humanity in it. Um, you know the scene I'm thinking of where she's yes, of course, near the beginning of the novel. Yeah, yeah, um, I, yeah I think it's what we could call psychological realism, isn't it? You know, I've mentioned yeah. realism as, as a traditional way of writing a novel, but this is uh, it's it's not modernist, but it's akin to modernism in that you get into the inner life of the mind, um, and that's of course where I think one of Murdoch's great strengths. Uh, lay. I'm glad you brought it up because as a philosopher she's always interested in how the mind works and she thought very differently about how the mind works to contemporary philosophers you know, of her t- own time. So yeah I think that's very important and, and some of those sections are the most engaging because they pull you into the novel, because they pull you into the inner, innermost lives of those characters. Yeah and they're, they're also quite funny. Um, yes. yes. You know the 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 scene where she's on the train, she's sitting down, and there's an old woman standing in the in yeah. the the aisle, yeah. and she doesn't know whether she should get up and give the yeah. old woman her seat, or or she should stay there, or yeah. and then she's getting sweatier and sweatier, yeah. um, because it's so hot, yeah. and and that is just something is sort of comedy of recognition. We've all been in that, that yes. situation. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, those moments of human frailty. We've all been there, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, and they are both uh, amusing, but also quite poignant, I think, often. But th- that that brings me to the the next question, really. That Murdoch quite often is characterised as a serious and div- difficult novelist, mm-hmm. um, especially works like The Sea, The Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bell is full of humour and absurdity. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think the the tension between the serious and the comic is a common feature of Murdoch's work? Yes, I do. Um, Some have that uh, more notably than others. I think by the time she gets to her late novels, there's perhaps less humour, more dark irony. But um, certainly, yes, in her early and middle period, um, there is a lovely balance between the series and the comic. Um, And you've already mentioned the the sort of that that sense of the ludicrous, which we all experience when you're not sure what to do in a certain situation in, in when Dora doesn't quite know whether she should give up her seat or not. But there are several other um, examples, often connected with Dora, because um, we, we often see things through her eyes. Um, and so we, we enter her state of mind. And um, she picks, at one point in the novel, she picks some pretty flowers. Well, soon after she's arrived in Court, she goes out and picks a bunch of wildflowers and she brings them back to brighten up the room, which she's sharing with her husband, Paul. But almost immediately, Mrs. Mark, who's a permanent resident at Impercourt and a sort of housekeeper figure, tells Dora rather officiously that um, they have a rule that um, 
rules um, that fresh flowers are not to be brought into the house. And she says rather pompously, we keep everything here as plain as possible. It's a little austerity we practice. Um, and I, I find that very funny. Uh, and it's Murdoch, of course, poking fun at the lay members' spiritual pride and that sense of self-righteousness. Um, and so we side automatically, I think we side with Dora here, but it is a comic moment. And But it's also revealing how uh, people sometimes get religion wrong. They adopt a religion like Christianity and all, some ways use it to inflate their own sense of self-importance. And that's shown again in James Taper Pace, and we'll come back to him perhaps later. And there's also a moment of farce in the novel, of course, when the uh, when in the middle of a very carefully planned ceremony and celebration, the new bell, uh, which is about to be hung in the tower, rolls off its trolley and falls into the lake. Um, again, another repetition. Uh, and there is, of course, comedy in many other novels too. Um, Severhead, The Black Prince, and The Sea, The Sea, which is a very dark novel. Um, it won the Booker Prize in 1978, but it, it has quite strong comic moments. In, in The Bell, I, I think I was particularly struck by some moments of almost slapstick um yeah. in particular the one that made me sort of laugh out loud was um dora and another character are are sort of jumping on each other in in lust and uh fulfilling that lust and they they push against the the bell uh, which yeah. they've recovered from the lake and it a big yeah. boom rings out yeah. across the, yeah, yeah. everyone hears it and I, yeah. I i i thought that was just a sort of ideal way to puncture this this sort yeah. of scene of of uh great sort of desire and romance yeah yeah, yeah. well yeah i agree entirely you know that as you say it's absolute slapstick when they fall against the clapper of the bell which then booms but it is a moment when, um, if you remember, Toby Gash has been kissed by Michael Mead and he's, he is in turmoil about his own sexual identity. And he's decided to focus on Dora as an object of sexual desire to prove to himself that he is heterosexual. So there's there's that behind what happens. And there's also the fact that the bell does toll, even though it's it's produced by a moment of, you know, frolicking inside an old bell or by a bell. Um, and of course, we know from the legend that when the bell tolls, a death will soon follow. And that's what happens in the novel. Because that's Nick right. Foley yeah. commits suicide. So the humour, um, and that's a very good example, is always connected to the more tragic dimensions of the novel, I think. You you mentioned also uh, about the sort of making fun of of how certain certain uh, certain of the characters uh, show their their piousness, their their religious yeah. uh, uh, will, I guess. Yeah. Um, and the bell is about a, a lay religious community, but is it a religious novel? I think that's an interesting question, um, and it's useful to think about Murdoch's um, own relationship to to religious and religious doctrine, I think, because she, she did go through many phases. During the 40s and 50s, she embraced a number of belief systems, including communism, existentialism, and Christianity. And when she was a student at Oxford, a close friend of hers, Lucy Klatchko, became a nun at Stanbrook Abbey. And Murdoch wrote to her, take me with you as much as you can, because she was she was drawn to the, the idea of contemplation and withdrawal from society. But late, uh, and then she became an atheist, a staunch atheist for many years. But then in later life, 
she became she returned to Christianity, but not as a return to God. She returned to the figure of Christ. God was the concept of God was meaningless for her, but the concept of Christ as a good man remained important. And she also became interested in other belief systems such as Hinduism and Buddhism, which of course has no God figure, is without a God. And she finally described herself in her later years as a Christian Buddhist. So I would say that as an individual, she became more interested in um, spirituality than in, if you like, religious doctrine and how that spirituality, how that spiritual path can be pursued in different ways. And although the bell is set um, in this lay community uh, sort of retreat um, next, next to the abbey or convent building, it doesn't strike me as a religious novel in the way that some novels are. It does feature what the religious life offers, however, uh, because we know we meet um, the abbess and some of the nuns, um, and that does involve, in their lives, they embrace spiritual love purely. So they embrace God and Christ. And it's a love that is unlike, totally unlike the other forms of love we meet in the novel. And secondly, of course, they've embraced the life of meditation, reflection and selflessness, ideally. Um, and Inber Court, which is the house of retreat, offers a similar setting. But of course, as the abbess says, it's full of damaged individuals. She, she sees them as sick people who are in a sort of limbo. They're unable to live in the world, unable to enter the monastic life or the life of a nun, and they're in a sort of limbo. And she seems to understand um, what's going on in this lay community, even though she's not there most of the time, um, almost an uncanny understanding. And when she speaks, she is entirely um, non-judgmental and wise. She, I think she's quite an attractive character. And she says to Michael Mead, who himself wanted to be a priest, but failed, she says, remember that all our failures are ultimately failures in love. Imperfect love must not be condemned and rejected, but made perfect. The way is always forward, never back. And this sounds almost like Murdoch speaking in her later years. God isn't mentioned. It's the idea of love uh, that is pursued and love that will uh, improve us morally if we can only understand what perfect love or good love is, or at least strive towards it. So yes, we have a critique of those characters in the novel who embrace Christian doctrine uh, to the extent that they can, they can no longer love, they're no longer compassionate in the way that we would like uh, a human being to be really. And James Taper Place, who gives a sermon while uh, in the novel, is, is, is a staunch Christian, uh, but an unimaginative man and a rule follower. And he insists in his, in his sermon that people should strive for, for, by perfection, by following strictly uh, the Christian rules. And this is, a, this is a very sort of almost um, fundamentalist view of Christianity. But of course, it's unrealistic and it doesn't allow for intellectual or spiritual independence. Um, Michael, on the other hand, leaves more room for human frailty and suggests that moral improvement uh, rather than perfection is a reasonable goal. Um, and in that, he's closer to the abbess. So in the end, I think uh, the novel isn't about God or religion, despite being set in a religious retreat near a Benedictine abbey. There's little sense of God. Um, like most of Murdoch's novels, I think it's more about what it means to have free will 
and what it means to choose goodness within that free will. Um, and part of that growing better or moral improvement, as Michael calls this, is outgrowing and growing out of what Murdoch calls in her book Existentialism, Existentialism Mystics. She calls it the fat, relentless ego, something that plagues us all, our fat, relentless egos, which prevent us seeing others clearly and learning to love others unselfishly. And of course, this brings us back to the bell, the idea of love, um, because the original bell, the old bell in the lake, carries the words vox ego sum amoris, I am the voice of love. And carved on the stone medallion above the doorway to Imber Court are the words amor via, meaning love is my way. But there is, there's nothing in the novel that limits that idea of love to a religious, religious love. Um, love is there throughout the novel, but in many shapes and forms. And it's interesting that moments of revelation in the novel, and people do have revelations, particularly Dora, they, they arise through secular, they arise through secular experiences rather than religious experiences. And we can perhaps say more about this when we come to talk about Dora in a bit more detail. So, Depends what you mean by religious novel. I don't think it's about God uh, or Christianity. They feed it in the novel, but it's really a novel about love in that broadest sense of the word. And and speaking about Murdoch's uh, philosophy, would you categorise The Bell as a philosophical novel? And, and how does it relate to Murdoch's own non-fiction books? Um. I think it can be read as a philosophical novel, but the philosophy is implicit. Um, it's not it's not dropped in heavily. It's implicit, I think, in how the characters behave and what happens to them. Um, it's certainly influenced by Murdoch's interest in philosophy. Um, she was, from very early on, a self-described Platonist. She wrote and studied about Plato's work, um, and she often referred to his allegory of the cave, in which... Um, and I'm sure everyone will remember, there's a group of people who live chained to the wall of a cave um, and they're facing a blank wall and they, they can see some shadows on the wall uh, which are projected um, when, when people pass in front of a fire behind them and they give names to these shadows thinking they're, they're real. Um, but of course, the philosopher understands that the shadows on the wall are not real at all. They are figments, they are illusions. And so the philosopher aims to understand and perceive higher levels of reality and knows that the sun and the light is, is outside, it's not there in the cave. And for Murdoch, to be good in the moral sense means seeking truth and rejecting illusion and delusions, just as the people in the cave should reject the shadows on the wall as as. Uh, real messages or real things and in that sense I think Platonism informs all her novels because they all explore how characters struggle with illusions and delusions concerning their own lives and choices um, and in answer to that question about how the novel's core relates to Murdoch's philosophy Peter Conradi wrote um, that the bell is I'm quoting here her first novel to be fueled by Platonism in which good substitutes for God and any authentic spiritual tradition, including appreciation of the visual arts, provides a means of ascent. And I think, you know, that's absolutely true of the bell. Um, another philosopher who came to influence Murdoch 
uh, heavily from the 1950s onwards was Simone Weil, the French philosopher who wrote about the importance of paying attention as a path to love and to moral improvement. This, this isn't, by this she didn't just mean ordinary everyday casual attention, but paying real and acute attention to the feelings and thoughts of another person so that we put our own egos, that fat relentless ego to one side and we can love somebody else exactly for what they are because we see them clearly. So we love them unreservedly, we don't try to change them and we understand them. And Vail, uh, Simone Vale called this process unselfing, it's a very memorable word, unselfing, which Murdoch went on to use a lot. Um, and interestingly, in 19, when I look back at the letters, I noticed that in 1968, an American student wrote to Murdoch asking whether she'd been influenced by Simone Vale's work when she wrote The Bell. And Murdoch replied um, that she wasn't sure she'd read Simone Vale's work by 1958. But in fact, she had, because in 1956, um, she reviewed uh, Simone Vale's notebooks for The Spectator. That's a year before she started work on The Bell. So I think there is some S Simone Vale in The Bell. Uh, it's, a, it's the beginning of a really strong relationship with Vale's work that lasts throughout Murdoch's, Murdoch's life. And there are many echoes of, um, well, they seem to be echoes of Vale's work in the bell. Um, for example, in the need for roots, Vale argues that we should not focus on human rights, but on obligation. An obligation, she says, arises from the very fact of encountering another human being. Each obligation responds to a human need. And I think in the bell, some characters meet their obligations and others don't. And Michael remains full of remorse for not having met the needs of Nick. Um, and so feels partly responsible for his suicide. So in her philosophics, Murdoch explores this idea of moral obligation and adopts Simone Weil's words, attention and unselfing. Um, and in Existentialism and Mystics, writings on philosophy and literature, she describes attention as a just and loving gaze upon an individual reality, which is the characteristic and proper mark of the moral agent. So for Murdoch, this sort of attention, which Simone Vale uh, identified and described, generates a genuine love, an unselfing, which she defines in the same book as the extremely difficult realisation that something other than oneself is real. Um, and one of the um, ways in which Murdoch throws light on this is, you can find it in The Sovereignty of Good, when she uses the parable of the mother-in-law. Um, and Murdoch uh, describes this mother-in-law as a rather conventional person um, who doesn't like her daughter-in-law, sees her as common and low and cheap. Um, but she behaves with politeness to this daughter-in-law because she's, she's a middle-class woman. Um, and no hint of her real feelings um, surface in the dialogue with her daughter-in-law. But she comes to realize that she's being unfair. And she comes to realise that her attitude to her daughter-in-law has been generated by jealousy and a desire to hang on to her son. She doesn't really want to share him. So she sets herself a moral task. She will change her view of her daughter-in-law, trying to make it more accurate and less marred by selfishness and her own ego. And she gives herself almost linguistic exercises in vision. Where she might have thought of her daughter-in-law as coarse, she thinks, I will now think of her as spontaneous. 
and where she used to think of her as common, she'll say, no, I see her as fresh and naive. And she goes on doing this and eventually she comes to see her daughter-in-law affectionately and justly and lovingly, as Murdoch says. Um, and this is to do with the inner life. The moral uh, improvements comes from the inner decision to put aside the ego and to try to see clearly and objectively and to understand the other. And of course, in, in, in offering this parable, uh, and this way of thinking about morality, Murdoch was rejecting uh, the, the philosophy, the moral philosophy of people like R.M. Hare and Stuart Hampshire, because she was claiming that the inner life is vital to moral judgment and to moral action. And of course, she distills this into her novels so that we see characters uh, sometimes emerging from their own solipsism and changing for the better. Um, and a key example of this in the bell, I think, is when Dora goes to the National Gallery. You remember, she she leaves mm. in a fit of frustration. She leaves Court and goes to spend the day in London uh, with Noel Spence, um, an old friend and lover. Uh, and then she she leaves, she decides on spur the moment, she doesn't want to stay with Noel and have lunch with him. And she goes, she decides to go back to Court. But before that, she goes to the National Gallery. And she looks at the paintings there and she comes across Gainsborough's The Painter's Daughter, Catching a but Butterfly, which is a very beautiful painting, which probably a lot of people will know. These two little girls, one slightly older than the other, one dressed in a sort of butter, buttercup yellow, the other in white. And the little one is leaning towards a butterfly, uh, which is sitting on a, on a thorn. And Dora is very, very moved by the picture, but she's moved in a particular way by this picture. and. She's been really caught up in her own feelings about Paul and the, and the wretchedness of her marriage, and she can't decide what to do. But when she sees the picture, uh, Murdoch describes her thinking, here was something which her consciousness could not wretchedly devour, and by making part of her fantasy make it worthless. The pictures were something real outside herself, something superior and good, whose presence destroyed the dreary trance-like solipsism of her earlier mood. And that's a turning point for Dora because she doesn't really understand quite why she's been moved by the picture so powerfully, but she does know that it's made her decide she must change her life. And it's left to the reader to work out what the significance of that um, Dora's experience before the painting is. But the key thing is here, this is not a religious revelation. It is a secular revelation that comes through art. Um, it's a moral improvement, a moral jump that comes through art. And of course, Murdoch believed um, against many uh, of the philosophers of the time that art could, art including literature, could make a difference to one's life, just as Burgess did, I think. That that's a fascinating rundown of the of the philosophy in in Murdoch's work and her nonfiction and it, it sort of brings me to a question that I'm I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer but um it strikes me that that Murdoch is is sort of divided between academic philosopher and novelist and and to what extent is she testing out her philosophical ideas pragmatically in her fiction yeah. do you think she's doing that well, she always denied, of course, that her that she was a philosophical novelist. She denied that her philo philosophy entered the novels. But actually, as a reader, if you know something, of, and I'm not a philosopher, so I can't pretend to be an expert on Murdoch's philosophy. But even if you read some of her philosophy, 
it seemed quite clear that it, if you like philosophy enters by the back door in the novels uh, but it's done through symbol and episode and revelation rather than um although there are there are novels in which characters talk about their philosophy um in the unicorn one of the characters talks about his philosophy and in some later novels but um i think the most successful novels the the philosophy gets in by the back door if you like okay um but other than uh, other than that sort of discussion about philosophy and religion um the bell can be seen as a novel dealing with some very progressive and very co- like current almost attitudes um it's in some ways it's a novel about sex uh, the sexual tension throughout the novel from pe- sort of page 1 is crazy it's you know it's it's really strong um uh, how does murdoch's writing about desire and love fit with the the other aspects of the novel the philosophical core of the novel the moral core of the novel the religious core of the novel how how does how does it fit well we talked earlier about murdoch challenging convention and and burgess saying that a good novel challenges convention um and certainly the bell challenges convention and raises quite profound moral and ethical and philosophic questions about desire i think um and yes it's as far as sex is concerned and you're right the, the novel especially in that hot summer you know, the novel seems to seethe with that sexual desire and repressed desire um but the novel is very progressive um in its treatment of homosexuality i think um it's published in 1958 and, and we see this through her um treatment of michael mead because michael mead is a homosexual he desires young young boys and young men um and we learned of course early on in the novel 25 years and um, some years ago when he was 25 he was sacked from his first teaching post um because uh, he was supposedly having um an inappropriate relationship with nick forley who was a boy then and nick forley went off to tell the headmaster about the behavior although the narrator um, michael sorry michael thinks that there was nothing really inappropriate. They they did nothing but hold hands, hands and exchange the gentlest of caresses. But interestingly, Murdoch offers no judgment on this. Um, and Michael um, said, Michael, we, we're in my, inside Michael's head where he thinks to himself he could not believe that there was anything inherently evil in the great love which he bore to Nick. This love was something so strong, so radiant, it came from so deep, it seemed of the very nature of goodness itself. And we learn that as a young teacher, Michael had harboured dreams of becoming not only Nick's, um, Nick Foley's lover, but a father figure for him because Nick and Catherine are orphans. Um, and of course, he's horrified years later in the present moment of the novel when he finds that Nick is also at uh, in the court, suffering from depression and mental health problems. Uh, the abbess has decided to take him in because she thinks that the uh, community can help him. Now, Michael is not damned for his behaviour. I mean, I have heard people damning Michael for behaviour. There's one Murdoch critic who thinks that um, we should forgive Michael nothing um, because he's a paedophile. You know, he's preying on on young boys and young men. Um, But it seems to me that actually Michael is presented fairly sympathetically um, in his in his anguish about his desires. But he. He, he, I think he is condemned implicitly for behaving coldly to Nick. Nick is clearly uh, in torment, and this torment expresses itself through fairly vicious statements and some vicious acts. Um, 
but he does nothing to help Nick because he's preoccupied with Toby. And Toby Gash, of course, is an 18-year-old, very handsome 18-year-old, who's between university and uh, between school and going up to Oxford and is spent spending a month or so in the lay community. Um, and Michael is suddenly uh, seized with desire for Toby and kisses him on the mouth. And this temporarily um, traumatises Toby, and who then, as we've said earlier, seeks to prove his heterosexual nature to himself by trying to seduce Dora. And Michael realises that the world thinks of him as perverted, that he this he gets this word perverted in his head because it's something that James Taper Pace implied in his sermon when James Taper Pace said that homosexuality was forbidden, but he doesn't accept this. He, Michael thinks to himself that God had created men and women with these tendencies and made these tendencies to run so deep that they were in many cases the very core of personality. For himself, God had made him so, and he did not think that God had made him a monster. And I don't think that Michael is damned by his homosexuality at all, uh, but he is damned because he doesn't uh, respond to Nick's need um, for help and for understanding. And so he does carry some guilt for Nick's suicide. And what's remarkable about all this is that Murdoch was writing this novel in 1957, when homosexual activity was still a crime. It was the year in which the Wolfenden report was published, and it was a report that recommended uh, decriminalising homosexuality. But it wasn't until 1967, so nine years after the bill was published, that um, the act, the law was changed and the Sexual Offences Act was passed in 67, which permitted homosexual activity between two consenting adults over the age of 21 in England and Wales. So when the bill was published in 58, men were still being prosecuted and sent to prison for homosexual activity. And in that context, it's worth noting that E.M. Forster's novel Morris about homosexual desire written between 1913 and 14, wasn't published until 1971. So I think Murdoch was both brave and prescient in writing about homosexuality in the way she did in The Bell. Um, and of course, uh, later in um, A Fairly Honourable Defeat, published in 1970, the best and most enduring relationship is between two homosexual men, Simon and Axel. So she was extremely progressive in her ideas I think um, what she doesn't forget she she understands the nature of same-sex desire she understands what you would now call gender fluidity what she doesn't um, condone is a refusal to help others a refusal to see others clearly and Michael is guilty of this so I think in a way that um, that treatment of uh, her treatment of Michael Mead as a character um, is both radical and prescient in terms of homosexuality, but also links in with her philosophy about what it means to be good. Moving moving on from, from that, how does the bell relate to Murdoch's other fiction? Are there thematic links between her novels that, that maybe began in the bell or, or, or the bell sort of is a, a part of a chain of? Um, yeah, I think there are thematic links. I mean, they're all different, but they do have um, thematic links, I think. Um, that business about not seeing the other clearly, I think, informs many of her, her novels. Um, Dora's marriage is unhappy, mainly because Paul does not. Paul is a man of great ego. He's also fairly cruel. Uh, he condescends to Dora and belittles her and humiliates her. 
um, and doesn't do anything to help her develop or grow as a person. And she's still quite young. Um, so it's clear that Paul Greenfield is, is full of the fat, relentless ego. And um, Dora suffers because of that. Um, and one of the things that happens in Murdoch's novels is that people often turn away from their unhappy, unhappiness into fantasy or escape, either, you know, love affair or moving. So Dora thinks that running up to London and throwing herself into the arms of Noel um, will solve things. But of course, she she realised very quickly that, that that's, that's not the answer. She's going to have to do something herself about her marriage to Paul, who is not, is not a likeable character at all because of his own ego. So that that uh, theme of being blind to the true nature of other people uh, comes up again and again in Murdoch's novels. Charles Araby's refusal to listen to Hartley when she tells him she doesn't want him back in her life and um, she's staying with her husband um, is another example of this. And, and he creates much mayhem and chaos and suffering because Charles refuses to accept it. Um, and there are what we call enchanter figures in the early in the early novels, usually male, probably based on Elias Canetti, who are charismatic and who set out to destroy um, other relationships. And a good example of this is Julius King in the fairly honorable honorable defeat, who tries to destroy that uh, relationship between Simon and Axel, uh, but fails. Um, all for all, I mean, he he almost he makes a bet that he can destroy this relationship again. It's a it's a question of ego. His ego is more important to him than the happiness of those around him. And another thing that I think runs through most of our novels is this uh, search to define goodness in a world in which God no longer exists. Um, and this, of course, is something that preoccupied uh, theologians as well. Um, Murdoch admired Don Cupid's work and, and met him, and he admired her work. Um, and uh, he, of course, his, I think his most interesting work is about how to be good in a world without God. And Murdoch's novels also tackle that question. Um, in The Time of the Angels, um, we have a very bleak novel in which a priest has lost his faith and sinks to the depths of depravity and sexually exploits his own daughter. So this idea that once you lose sight of uh, God and goodness, if you lose sight of God, you need to replace it with something. And you have to replace it with the idea of moral goodness and what you need to aim for to become a better person. If you lose sight of that, as the priest does in the time of the angels, then you become an exploiter of others. You become a relentless, you know, large ego who cares nothing about anybody else. Um, and often, in fact, goodness in her work appears in small acts, not large acts, but in small acts of kindness and generosity. And one of the themes that runs through these novels is that it's clear that the responsibility for moral growth lies with the individual, not with any doctrine or creed. And we've touched on this already. And in her late novels, uh, her late baggy novels, The Book and the Brotherhood and The Message to the Planet, um, Guru figures and political thought and the disciplines and philosophy and theology are see, or they're all seen as consoling fictions. Um, they are not seen as a path to the truth. She accepted a world without God, and in her later years, she was very drawn to Buddhism. 
um, she and Peter Conradi, uh, Conradi converted to Buddhism too, and they discussed it a great deal. And of course, Buddhism bases itself on the long struggle, the path to enlightenment, in which morality, meditation, and wisdom are the three key things. Um, we see little of this in the novels. We do have it in James Araby in The Sea, the Sea, who is a good man who has become a Buddhist. Um, so I think those those themes, I've touched on several there, but they inform, they, they run across several, they don't sort of all progress um, in a linear fashion across her novels, but they, they crop up again and again in her novels in slightly different ways. One novel you didn't mention is The Unicorn, which uh, yes, when, yes. when I was reading the bell it struck me that the unicorn and the bell are are almost like companion pieces they're such such similar novels in their in their sort of themes and settings really i mean the unicorn is set in a isolated community Mm. uh in scotland is it if i remember correctly no it's in ireland in In ireland Ireland. sorry yes yes. um so uh, but but there's the similarities between that and the bell just really struck me yes uh, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And they both, of course, have quite strong Gothic elements. Um, and the abbess, uh, I can't remember the actual words, but the abbess says something like, um, people come uh, into retreat to, um, they think they're going to solve their problems, but and they're, but they're actually running away from the world. And in both those novels, people um, go to a place that they think will give them answers, but they discover that the answers lie only within themselves, not within the place or other people. Um. Just a, a couple of final questions. Uh, what do you think the legacy of Iris Murdoch's work is today? And do you see any novels being published uh, which are influenced by Mur- Murdoch's writing? Several authors have acknowledged her influence on them, and these include Ian McEwan. And I think in some ways Ian McEwan has become a bit like Murdoch in that he's almost a public intellectual. You know, she was regarded as a public intellectual at the height of her her fame, and and McEwen is too. And he does tend to write on topics that raise moral questions, um, and that are sometimes uncomfortable. I think um, other writers who've admitted they've been influenced by her include um, Alan Hollinghurst, Sarah Waters, A. S. Byatt, and Ali Smith. Um, Ali Smith is also concerned, like Murdoch, with the question how we can live a good life in a time when the old certainties provided by organised religion have crumbled. But one of the ones that interests me most, actually, is a a fairly new writer, Sarah Perry. Um, Sarah Perry, um, as you know, became famous with her second novel, The Essex Serpent, which became a bestseller Mm -hmm. and has been translated into many languages. She did her PhD, uh, it was a creative writing PhD, so half of it, at least probably 80% of it was a novel, and um, the other section looked at Gothic fiction because her own novel used Gothic effects, and she looked at The Bell and the Unicorn as well as some classic Gothic novels. Um, and her first novel, Confusion, is very much like The Bell, it's structured like The Bell with um, uh, a man who loses his way on a journey and stumbles across a small community and all the secrets and um, difficulties and complications uh, under that roof he comes to be part of and finds uh, discovers things about himself because of that. Um, and the Essex Serpent, the one that made her really famous, um, combines realism with the Gothic, like the Bell and the Unicorn. And it also explores tensions between religion, science, and superstition and the moral quandaries that characters experience result, which is exactly what Murdoch does. 
very um, openly, I think, in the book and the Brotherhood and the Message from the Planet. So, yeah, I think she does have a legacy, um, more so now perhaps than she did, um, you know, at the end of her own life. It's during uh, this century and the end of our century that um, I know she died in the 1990s, but it's almost after her death that her uh, her legacy has become clearer. I think. Okay, and and this is a question that we're asking everybody that we speak to on the Ninety Nine Novels podcast. Um, if you could add a hundredth novel to Burgess's list, what would it be and why? Well, I had great fun, <laughs> and um, and um, thinking about this, and it threw me into perplexity for a day or so. And then I thought, I know, I know the one I'm going to choose. It's a novel that some people will know and others will never have heard of. It's a novel by an English novelist called Barbara Cummins, who wrote a book called Who Was Changed and Who Was Dead, which was published in 1954. And it was reprinted by Daunt Books last year, in 2021. And it features a village in Warwickshire. It was inspired by... Um, um, Ergo, a pe- episode of ergo poisoning in France in 1951 and um, uh, Barbara Cummings read about that and she took the story and uh, placed it in the village in Middle England in Warwickshire and this this poor village suffers a terrible flood um, and then is weighed laced by ergo poisoning because the, bi- uh, the baker has used a disease rye to make the bread so people run raving and go mad it because it's, it is um sort of grung in your novel you know it's, it's dark and tragic but also has very blackly comic moments but also of course he asks where is god you know this is happening to this doesn't ask that overtly but the implication is where is god in all this why are these terrible things being sent to us um and she's very very good at opening sentences just as murdoch was and just as burgess was so this novel opens the duck swam through the drawing room windows. The weight of the water had forced the windows open. So the ducks swam in. Round the room they sailed, quacking their approval. Then they sailed out again to explore the wonderful new world that had come in the night. Um, I don't know whether Burgess read this novel when it was published in 1954, but I'm sure he would have enjoyed its strange mixture of comedy and horror. Um, and it's interesting, actually, because this novel... Cummins' novel was banned in Ireland in 1955. It was thought to be uh, blasphemous. And of course, some of Burgess's own work was banned in the States, A Clockwork Orange, particularly after the film came out. Um, I think he would have enjoyed it. Um, And it is clear that he did come to know her work um, because he wrote a review in 1962 of her sixth novel, The Skin Chairs. And this review was published in The Observer in 1962 in an article entitled The Innocent Nightmare. And Burgess wrote, uh, Barbara Cummings is one of our most original talents. The qualities that made the vet's daughter so remarkable are, are all here. Beauty, pity and terror conveyed without strain or protestation. As coherent a vision as any book about childhood yet presented. Weirdly mysterious is how Frances describes the skin chairs to her great aunt. That will do for the book too. So I think he would be quite happy that I chose this as the hundredth, uh, chose not this book, but her earlier book, um, Who Was Changed and Who Was Dead, as the hundredth one for his list. That's great. Sounds like a fascinating choice. It's not one that I've read, but uh, as I do this podcast, the stack of books on my bedside table gets ever higher. <laughs> so uh, um, Avril, thanks for joining us on the 99 Novels podcast. It's been a fascinating tour through through Iris Murdoch's work. Um and uh, I've, I've had a great time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Graham. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed our discussion too.
You've been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. Living on Paper, Letters from Iris Murdoch, 1934-1995, edited by Avril Horner and Anne Rowe, is out now from Vintage. The theme music is Anthony Burgess's Concerto for Flute, Strings and Piano in D minor and is performed by No Dice Collective. They can be found online at nodicecollective.com. For more information about Anthony Burgess and the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.